Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, what's up? I, you know, I, I don't know if this changes, like every time I do that intro, if it's like the second most handsome doctor in North America or the world or like the South Pacific when we were in Australia. <laughs> I just, yeah, it sounded different to me just then. I didn't know if I've just been downgraded. There's somebody in like, you know, somebody in Europe who's ascending the ranks. I mean, probably we're getting a lot of posts on our forum, which by the way, you guys and gals who are listening at home, if you haven't participated on the Barbell Medicine Forum, you guys should do that. It'd be fantastic to get your questions answered. Uh, we participate there regularly, but any, in any event, we've been getting a lot of posts from like it seems. It seems like if you're if you're entering your medical of medical fellowship, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of residents and doctors and stuff on there, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I, I and I noticed that they're all, most of them are from outside the United States because they spell words interestingly, like. Oh, I'm a pediatrics hematological fellow. I was like, <laughs> there's so many vowels that you put in there. That Inserting it's, a lot of U's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So pretty soon they'll be talking about oedema and oesophagus. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's not like a Yiddish version, you know, like oesophagus. It's like, it's just an O-E. Yeah. Uh, so this podcast is going to be a mishmash. Usually we have a specific topic that we've researched and we had a bunch of, you know, citations and stuff that we provide in the description. This is going to be a little bit different, just a kind of a life update, training update, and talk about some books we've recently read. And then also confer a non-exhaustive reading list because we get asked all the time, hey, what books should I read? And then it's kind of similar when people ask, like, how should I train? And we're like, well what do you want to learn? <laughs> like, I, so. shud- I, I, I shudder to think of what an exhaustive reading list would look like coming from us. To, to yeah, just, or well, if we, we, even worse would be if we included like Derek in the picture who has just like stacks and stacks of books that he's reading all the time. Well, right. So I got inspired by this because, uh, so there's another, uh, pain podcast, uh, that's going to go up, uh, with Derek, Mike and Michael and, uh, Derek, I was editing that and, uh, Derek's Derek, uh, repeated a line. He's like, you know, the, the thing is I'm acutely aware of things I don't know. And so that's why I'm, I'm a voracious reader, you know, which I think is similar to 
the reason that we, <laughs> you know, consume stuff uh, at a rapid rate and try to, especially and try to get outside of our comfort zone to identify things that we don't know, we don't know. Um, but anyway, let's let's start with some some easier stuff first, dude. You've been busy, man. Uh, uh, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, which is not unusual, but but uh, you recently went up to Minnesota. Uh, tell tell the folks at home what you did up there and and and, and some of that stuff. Yeah, so it was a pretty cool trip. Um, out of some of the work that we've done, um, it got the attention of one of the staff uh, hematology oncology uh, folks up at the University of Minnesota. Her name is Dr. Holton. She's a bone marrow transplant specialist. And um, she was interested in my getting involved in um, some projects that they have going on. So she recently ran a pilot study on strength training among her uh, post bone marrow transplant patients. So it was a group of eight patients, I believe. And they had, um, they ran them through with a coach and they had them strength training and they measured multiple different outcomes, including one of which was self-efficacy, which I thought was pretty awesome. And they're wanting to now run a larger uh, version of this trial. And they wanted to get my input on their study design and how they were going to run the thing. And they wanted me to go up and lecture their, um, hematology oncology department about sarcopenia in general, because apparently while a lot of oncologists are very aware of the concept of cancer related cachexia, uh, the fundamental concept of sarcopenia as kind of a somewhat separate definition, uh, somewhat separate uh, thing than that uh, they wanted some more detail on. And so I designed uh, a, a more oncology specific lecture to deliver, flew up there, got to meet with their study uh, team, and we uh, we talked about their study design, gave a bunch of input and suggestions as to things they could do better, differently, um, et cetera, and then uh, got to hang out in, in Minneapolis that evening where uh, they had a cancer support group for their uh, bone marrow tra- post-bone marrow transplant patients and did a Q&A with the patients who were kind of, you know, wanting to talk about their experience going through this and how they can, um, you know, continue to exercise and strategies to manage, you know, um, say their fatigue or pain or, you know, uh, neuropathy or whatever symptoms or complications they had for the procedure, how they can continue exercising and, uh, maintaining good quality of life from that. So that was pretty, that was pretty awesome to meet and talk with those folks, um, gave the lecture to the department the next day, excuse me, the next day. And then and then flew home. So that was a that was a quick uh, two day trip up there. But it was but it was pretty cool. And I um, I got some of the lecture recorded um, on my camera. I got some audio. I know I sent it to you the the in the room because there were slides and they turned the lights down. The video was pretty dark. But I think you said I don't know. Maybe we'll see what we can make of it. What, what do yeah. you think? Yes, I've been working on it. You guys will get a an edited version to that hopefully makes things a little bit more clear than the way that I got it raw. But yeah. uh, you know. I think it's good information, and, and Dr. Holton was hoping that it would be posted so she could share it among the the oncology community as well. So, yeah, yeah, well, it'll 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 be uh, formatted nicely for mass consumption. Uh, but it's really cool that you got to do that, and uh, that you know people even aware are aware of what we're doing now. Yeah. Before before we move on from this, so I, I don't know if I actually told you this, but we now we have the contract. Well, it's not a contract. I mean, I don't really know how to better describe this, but, you know, we did these, these two articles for up to date about strength training and primary care. And, uh, we had been batting around the idea of trying to do like a sarcopenia related one. And, uh, they finally got back to me and said, yeah, of course that's, we're lacking. And, uh, we would love to have you guys do uh, weigh in on that. So 
we got, we got that uh, to add to our to do list. But well, <laughs> so this is this is the first you're telling me about this. Yes, uh, <laughs> live on the air. No, but uh, but you know, for, for this one, I, I'm. The, the first two articles were a pretty enormous project uh, because it required so much of the, the research and the literature review, you know, going through all these different organ systems and medical conditions and things like that. For, for this one, I'm not necessarily viewing it as big of a deal just because of like, you know, I feel like I have gotten to the point where I am familiar with this base of literature, like really, really well um, to the point where I think that we can knock this one out and shouldn't be as, 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 uh, ominous of a project as the first two were. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that entirely. Now, just, you know, so we're not just teasing the folks uh, at home listening and who may not end up having access to this um, and who would be waiting for the lecture that we just alluded to. Can can you give people at home just a brief overview of like what sarcopenia is and then how we kind of look at it from both a treatment and prevention standpoint? Yeah, it basically just refers to a situation where there's a decreased amount of muscle mass. And there are so many reasons why that can happen. It can be just kind of what's called primary sarcopenia, where just kind of as people age, they tend to lose muscle mass. And that can be, there can be a number of reasons why that might occur, or it could be specifically disease related. And in, in the context, when I was up there lecturing, I was giving in the context of cancer as one of the main driving factors. But of course, in cancer, in that situation, it's even more complicated because now we're throwing chemotherapy at people, we're giving them radiation, we're making them sick to the point where they can't eat enough and then they get malnourished. They have pain or neuropathy complications from their chemotherapy, for example. So exercise gets markedly more difficult or they're more fearful of doing it. Um, they may have other other uh, medical complicate medical conditions in, in addition to their cancer that might limit them. There's just so many factors that can drive the ultimate kind of process that is loss of, of muscle mass. And so that, that was what I was up there kind of lecturing about to, to help them understand all the factors that go into it. And then from the treatment prevention standpoint, ideally it gets prevented and we get people exercising earlier in life uh, as early as possible. Uh, but even in the situation where it's established, we can, to an extent, reverse it um, to, to some degree. Now, the further down that path people get towards like, you know, severe cancer related cachexia, they get basically more and more and more resistant to these interventions, these treatments that we can offer in terms of nutritional exercise, or probably even pharmacologic uh, interventions at the point where maybe we have some, some drugs that we can use for this, they would probably even be the most resistant to those things as well. So, you know, from a lifestyle standpoint, treatment prevention of these things, we really focus on uh, dietary protein intake and resistance training. And the, and the key point that I try to get across in lectures on this topic is that the dose of it matters. And, and the dose of these things matter for everybody, whether they're for just regular healthy people want to get the most out of their life and their training or for people who are sick with medical conditions or have cancer or in the hospital, in the hospital whatever the situation is, the dose, the dose of it matters. And so uh, that means that, you know, needs to be kind of individualized to the, to the medical, medical context, but vague, not, not vague, but general like dietary protein recommendations. We give people, you know, on the low end, 1.2 grams per kilo per day. Sometimes we go up, upward as high as two, 2.2. And when people are like super jacked, super lean dieting for a bodybuilding show, you can put, push that up as high as three. It's been studied to be and shown to be safe as high as four grams per kilo per day, which is an insane amount of protein. So, so the dose of it matters, and then the same goes for resistance training um, in terms of the dose response effect that we see, meaning that as you increase the dose of training volume that people are exposed to, you get larger uh, uh, out, 
outcomes with respect to hypertrophy. Although I will say there's some uh, nuance to that subject that I get into in my research review article for our uh, for our research review publication uh, this yeah. month in particular. So we will talk about that shortly. Uh, yeah, it's, I think you know the way I view it, the sarcopenia uh, in this context is that from a prevention standpoint, we're looking to kind of build this physical 401k, this physiological reserve via muscle mass accretion during the formative years and like healthy years that people live. So, you know, it's highly unlikely that you or I will ever experience sarcopenia just due to the base of muscle mass that we have already built. You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of people with a myriad of different disease processes who have not done that. And, and are already starting from an area where like they're less responsive to training than they otherwise would be. And certainly sure. that we are. So it's just a harder thing to treat than, you know, compared to the prevention, uh, uh, that we could have done had we intervened earlier on. Sure. And, and, and to add to your, the, the, the note about being underdosed, it's an, in addition to being underdosed typically, like as far as training and, uh, dietary changes go, it's underutilized too. Yeah, it's just sure. yeah, like, <laughs> and even and even for people like us, you said that it would be unlikely for us to become sarcopenic. But on the other hand, I mean, something terrible could happen to either of us. And 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 you know, if 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 even somebody even somebody like us, you know, ended up say in the hospital, super sick or in an ICU for you know a few a, a couple months, you know, that could represent a pretty enormous loss of, of lean body mass. So it can happen to pretty much anybody. Um, the more acute, the more severe the the insult, the you know the the more rapid rapidly that it happens. But uh, the idea being, like you said, that you want to take as much of that lean body mass as you can into old age if you remain relatively healthy, uh, you know that you know uh, that long, or into any acute situation. Like if you were to become really really sick, carrying more lean body mass going into that situation is going to serve you uh, serve you better than than having less uh, in general. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, when I was 18, the summer between my uh, first and second year of college, I uh, I didn't get to race. I used to race dirt bikes, right? So like, I but I didn't get to race at all my freshman year because I was away and, you know, focusing on school, sure. whatever that means. Sure. Uh, yeah. And then I, my first race back, I got landed on and I dislocated my hip. And, uh, after it was reduced, they were worried about osteonecrosis of the femoral head. And so I had this like special brace and like, I had a bunch of movement restrictions. I couldn't actually walk for a period of time. And so, and I wasn't training at that point other than like cardio stuff. So it's not, I mean, I was just a young, healthy 18 year old dude. Right. And, uh, I remember it was like three months where I wasn't really ambulatory for like, you know, back up to normal. And I lost a considerable amount of muscle mass. I, I wasn't like sure. the machinist or anything, you know, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, had I, you know, it would have been nice to have more muscle mass going into that. And then also be aware of like dietary interventions and other things that I could have been doing during that time to help preserve or at least mitigate, you know, as much muscle mass loss as actually occurred. And that, and that was, and you think about it, I was 18, right. With no other chronic medical conditions. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And and I think like a good uh, on multiple levels a good metaphor for life is uh Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. And uh in this situation you can view it as you want to push the rock up the hill as high as you can so that if something happens and it starts rolling back on you, you have as much time as possible before you get to the bottom. Yeah, all the way to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh other life updates. So you got a birthday coming up, dude. Uh yeah, it'll be Fort Collins weekend. 
one. It's a big there. one. The big, uh, the, that's where, I mean, you know, I hear everything starts going downhill from there, right? I mean, I had, you know, I, I can't recall. I, I remember my 30th birthday, I was on a peds shift overnight while uh, I was in medical school. So it wasn't really, there wasn't anything positive happening in my life. <laughs> yeah. Neat. So, so after that weekend, I go show up to train Monday and start my uh, ending strength. Uh, Your linear regression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so you'll turn thirty, and then I t- I just turned thirty four. So I guess I'm even. I'm just waiting for that sub masters class, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, it was, it was funny that my birthday party. I think you know if you guys follow me on Instagram, you guys saw that it was called the placebo party, uh, and they all my friends got together. Yeah, they made all these like these little stations that were like things that would trigger me like there was like a mobility station there was like a cbd station there was a juice cleanse station there was like a reflexology thing it was cry out there like it, everything and uh it was so funny that i forgot to get triggered but it was you know they, <laughs> they made a pinata like a dinosaur pinata like tom's trophies yep. and uh yeah inside of it luckily it wasn't just like you know a bunch of essential oils or anything because that would have been weird but it, it was it was funny uh and then let's see what else i just moved to san diego so this is uh the second recording uh from san diego i did one with vanessa uh like the day i moved in mm-hmm. and it was funny because i was recording it i didn't have any of my studio set up right so i was like where can i put the microphone where it's not going to be a bunch of reverb and like terrible yeah. noise because then i just can't deal with the comments you yeah. know i'm fragile so i was in my closet i put all my <laughs> hanging clothes up and then I put the microphone directly against that. So it would like, act as like a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's like a poor man's bass trap. Uh, but so how's now, the, now uh, how's the training situation down there? So it's great. Yeah. I'm a convoy strength, uh, which is a nice powerlifting gym. They've got a bunch of combo racks. They're expanding. They bought a bunch of new Alico nice. combo racks. I got my Alico bar. They got comp plates. It's all good. Uh, yeah, I, it's, I can't complain. So, so when are we going to do a seminar in San Diego? Yeah. Uh, so I think we're, it looks like we're going to be in Miami in January. I think February is going to be the, I think that's, we're going to go to the West coast. SoCal. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it will be better than the last time we came to California, which was Santa Cruz and it was like rainy and terrible oh, and gross. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll go to SoCal instead. It'll be fine. All right. It, uh, let's see. So, and then your training's going well. Uh, yeah, finally, um, I've gotten my adductor tendon to, to start calming down. Um, and so weights are that, that had knocked me back for, for uh, a little while towards the beginning of this year. Um, so getting back on track uh, this week, I squatted, what was that? 242 and a half, um, for a set of four, which is 12 and a half kilos off my best set of four. Um, I pulled, uh, 270 for a set of four yesterday, which is, I forget how many, I pulled 630 pounds for four, whatever that is in kilos. Um, so, so probably not actually maybe 5% or something like that off my, my, uh, best rep maxes there. And so it'll be time to reintroduce some singles soon. Nice. And things are getting there. I however, however, I did have uh, food poisoning last week and that, uh, I promptly dropped down to like 193 pounds and I'm clawing my way back up. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's a little a little bump in the road. Yeah, uh, this is that. So moving some serious weight, I guess two what two forty two and a half five thirty seven or something like that. So uh, something like that. Yeah, five thirty five. Yeah, yeah. For I squatted five five sixty two for four is my best uh, four. That was in Arizona, four. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep, and I just uh, 
I just started my meat prep this week. So I hadn't squatted, I hadn't back squatted in like five weeks ever since the meat, just because uh, the strongman meat or the powerlifting meat. The powerlifting meat, yeah. Because oh, okay. I was just doing safety squat bar stuff and like uh, the yoke bar squat thing. Uh, so yeah, I just worked up to five hundred for a couple triples, and then yesterday I pulled two ninety for a couple triples, Ooh, which is nice. what six six forty. Ah, well, you know, can always deadlift. The wor- <laughs> the thing that actually suffered the worst. I mean, my squat strength is good. Just the technique is like sure. not not where it needs to be. But my bench probably is the thing that dropped the most. I I benched. 170 374 for a couple triples uh which is not too far off but it's not like my best is i think 405 for a triple or something so i'm gonna have to get get strong again and then then we can start posting instagram videos yeah i mean i think i think a lot of times what i end up doing myself in these sort of situations is is uh is trying to i find that reframing these things as a percentage make me feel better about it (laughs) so i mean for you it's like 374 off 405 you know that's you know less than a little under 10 percent and and we we experience five to ten percent swings in strength performance, not infrequently related to fatigue or or just you know shit happening. So um, when I when I view it that way, um, it makes me not could not get uh, you know unnecessarily concerned with with some of the fluctuations. It's part of the yeah. process. Yeah, I'm not depressed yet. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> we'll give it a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, let's see other updates. Hey, IPF Worlds just happened. It did. <laughs> uh okay a few highlights i'll i'll say from my end and then you see if see if you got anything different so first highlight uh sam calhoun your client almost pulling for gold yeah <laughs> she, kind of chipped, she was trying to chip her own record what was it 228 that she had on there well so that was not a chip that wasn't a chip i don't think that was a chip for her own record because she hasn't pulled 228 um she pulled uh 225 and a half at nationals last year oh so it's more than a chip uh, well it was for the it was it was for the win because um, she was up against a beast of, I think the girl was from Italy. Um, and uh, yeah, that was what she basically had to pull to win. She had a, she had a pretty solid meet overall. She squatted 172 and a half, which ties her meet PR her, on the bench. Um, she accidentally got called for her butt coming off the bench on her opener. Um, so she had to retake that and ended up with 102 and a half on as her third bench. Whereas I think she's capable of, of uh, a little more than that. We were hoping for one, Something like, you know, maybe we were aiming for maybe a 107 and a half third attempt if, if all went great. So we were a little under there. And then deadlift, she pulled 217 and a half um, on her second attempt. And then that put her in Jump. position. She was, yeah, super strong, but put her in position where she was pulling last and she had the opportunity to pull for the win. She got 228 and a half, which is what, like 503 or something like that. Uh, she got that up to just below the knees and then it just slowed down and she had to set it back down. Um, but second overall at Worlds, pretty solid performance. Uh, she was pleased with it. Not, you know, she went wanting to win, but that girl, the the girl she was competing against, was uh, a little lighter than her, and um, you know, just straight up stronger. <laughs> she squatted one eighty five and a half as a sixty three kilo lifter. So that's so pretty strong. Wow, yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. Uh, let's see other people, other like notable performances, uh, and you know, of course, since we're from the United States, we're from America. <laughs> we find this we we tend to uh focus on on the american lifters so taylor atwood in the 74 kilo class just freak among freaks <laughs> i mean he squatted uh 623 yeah he benched 430 <laughs> and he deadlifted 689 as a 74 kilo lifter yeah 
and just uh, insane. Yeah, yeah, that's imp- really impressive. So he uh, he crushed everybody. Uh, Russ Orhe with his what was what was that squat? Three hundred thirteen kilos at six eighty three or something like that. Yeah. 313. Yeah. I think it was 313. Pretty, well, yeah. Somewhere around there. It's the yeah. first hard squat I've ever seen him do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So an 83 I kilo. <laughs> yeah. So an 83 kilo class. I mean, yeah, just squatted a house and then uh, ended up winning. Uh, I actually didn't watch any of the 93s or 105s. Um, the only other class that I watched was Ray, William, the super heavies, and saw Ray have just a. That's the worst I've ever seen him look. Yeah, they. I guess they had been saying he had some food poisoning and had like rapidly lost like 15 kilos or something before the meet. And you know, it seems like probably should have uh, dropped his squat openers, but you know, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes, and and that led to you know what we ended up seeing happen, which was a first for for most people to see happen to him. Yeah, normally Ray, if you guys don't follow powerlifting, which I would suspect most of you don't, just because you know you're well-adjusted humans. It's powerlifting. <laughs> but Ray Williams holds an all-time world record for raw squat, over 1,000 pounds. He's a beast of a squatter. He, and I think it's funny, his first meet, like, ever, he squatted 881 or something like that. And it would just, you know, it was RP0. That was, like, his first – and people were like, wow, he's going to be pretty good. But we had no idea how good he's going to be. And uh, But anyway, normally when he walks his squats out, he's just a very strong squatter. He walks it out. It's no big deal, you know. He's all hyped up. This time, I've never seen a man shake like that. Yeah, yeah, that's when you knew like, something was up. Yeah, I was like, "What's going on?" Yeah. So yeah, he bombed out unfortunately, but he'll be back. Uh, IPF Worlds though is uh, in Sweden. I don't know where it is next year. Uh, I, I don't, don't know have it either. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's powerlifting. We don't. Uh, we're fans. We're casual fans. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And then the last kind of update that'll segue into our actual topic about. A recent book that we both read and were both built basically like, wow, this book's amazing. Everyone needs to read it. Um, what? Well, let's talk about some recent papers that we've read. Uh, I'm just going to pick one just because I we both read a lot of stuff, but I think this stuff's interesting and we have additional background knowledge on this topic. So this is a recent study that came uh, from was published in the Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise Journal. That's the American College of Sports Medicine Journal. The title of the article is called Aerobic Exercise Performance and Muscle Strength in Statin Users, the Life Stat Study. Hmm. So this just got published. It's like fresh off the presses. So basically what they did is they took, uh, they looked at 6,000 Danish folks on statins. And uh, they identified within that group, they identified people who had myalgia, muscle pain from statin use. What's the first interesting thing here is they only found that 64 statin users had myalgia, which is 1%. And usually when you look at like the incidence of myalgia in a population using statins, the incidence is higher not to say that that's directly caused by statins because we have data suggesting that's not necessarily the case but if you look at all comers on statins that's just a pretty low that's a really low rate in any event they compared people on statins who had myalgia with people who were on statins who did not have myalgia and looked at their aerobic performance and their muscular strength uh after they were put on the same program and there was no difference in their muscular strength or endurance even if they had myalgia which I thought was cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's like, given some, even if you have this side effect, you know, right. You yeah. still, and, and given some of the other, the crossover studies that we've seen done before the, you know, the, the placebo controlled trials on this stuff where we see equivalent 
rates of reporting of some of these side effects in, in placebo groups or even higher rates of reporting in people who are receiving a placebo who were warned about these side effects. There's just this enormous nocebo type effect and, and kind of a cultural or a social learning kind of thing pertaining to side effects from, from statins. So that's pretty interesting, uh, interesting findings there. And, and one thing that's worth clarifying is that, um, you know, when you say myalgia, the, that's a medical word that strictly means muscle pain or like a muscle ache or something like that, as opposed to myopathy or myositis, which the difference with those situations is that we have some sort of objective biochemical evidence of muscle damage. Usually that's like a serum CK measurement that's elevated uh, above, you know, above the normal range for, for somebody. That would be evidence of uh, more objective evidence of, of uh, kind of muscle damage. And of course, it should also be clarified that that is normal for it to increase after exercise because we get posts on the forum all the time about people who say, you know, I exercised and I, you know, I got my CK measurement and it was elevated and, and my doctor was freaking out about it or something. And I'm like, you know, usually that level doesn't even, it shouldn't even be checked for most people unless the doctor suspects that the individual has rhabdo or has some other reason for a myopathy or a myositis or something like that. Otherwise there's yeah. really not reason to check that, um, outside of those contexts or like a drug side effect or something like that. Um, but that's very different. So, so what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here is that if people are taking these medications and if they experience some like muscle aches, not only do we appear to have some evidence based on what you're citing that their physical function is unlikely to be impaired by it, but that is not the same thing as like, oh, I have aches, therefore this drug is like destroying my muscles or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. And just again, for clarification, CK, when we say that's creatine kinase, it's an enzyme, it's present in muscle tissue. And when muscle tissue breaks down, that enzyme's released into the bloodstream yeah. and you can measure it. And in the cases like rhabdomyolysis, there's a really significant increase in that, like way, way high. You know, there's, uh, uh, I, I don't know the fold, like how high it actually gets, you yeah. know. Um, it's pretty variable. But, there's not necessarily one specific cutoff, but as it gets right, higher and for, higher, uh, then your concern of other bad stuff happening gets higher and higher as well. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's just it, people, yeah, you're right though, on the forum always ask, hey, my CK was elevated based on this lab assay that I, you know, these lab tests I got from my doctor, you know, what do? Yeah. It's like, well, we can't make that judgment call based because we don't know the rest of the clinical picture. But what you would want to know as a person engaged in regular, vigorous physical activity is that your CK will be elevated directly after exercise and for up to seven days post-exercise, similar to the uh, liver enzymes, liver function tests that we use, which are also enzymes uh, found in uh, muscular tissue. Yeah. So if you're going to get this complete metabolic panel and getting all your labs done and, you know, you're, you're away, you, you might consider doing that after a long period of uh, not exercising. So for instance, if you were going to get your labs done on Monday, maybe you stop training you know, the Wednesday or Thursday before, if getting pristine numbers on that test matter to you, um, basically, if your doctor was 
could not interpret those. Sure. Or if you had it checked and they were abnormal and you wanted to see if it was related to related to exercise or something Training. like that. Because because yep. you know if you're if your you know uh, levels are only mildly elevated after exercise, then maybe from a f- train on Friday, maybe by Monday it's normal. The half life of CK and the serum is somewhere around thirty six hours on average. So yep. um, you know that is a decent amount of time for for relatively low levels to drop back down into the normal range. But if they're they're much higher than that, then maybe you need to re- get it rechecked, um, you know, uh, uh, with a little bit more time. Or alternatively, <laughs> maybe it shouldn't have been checked at all in the first place if you didn't yes, know that's what somebody thought you had rhabdo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I thought this paper was interesting. I'll link the full text in the show notes below. But yeah, because we, we talk about statin use uh, with respect to uh, reducing people's risk of cardiovascular disease, secondary to having dyslipidemia or uh, altered lipoprotein levels. Yeah, yeah correct. Uh, and then, you know, we talk about potentially people having side effects. And it just was really interesting to me that you even had people who had like diagnosed muscle pain secondary to statin use and their performance was not otherwise changed. Because you would, I mean, if you would have asked me, 10 minutes before reading this article, I would have said, yeah, these people probably have objective decrement, you know, in sure. performance sure. just because of the muscle pain. But, uh, turns out it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, uh, anything you've read recently that you'd find, uh, that you found particularly interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, I post stuff all the, like once a week, pretty much. I post a few things that I've read to our, uh, to our Facebook group and share it on our forum as well. Um, there were, let me think, I'm scrolling through some of my list here. Um, one that uh, one that was interesting uh, was a qualitative paper, meaning they weren't measuring you know, biomarkers or something like that, but it was a systematic review in the Journal of Physiotherapy uh, published June 18th. The title, it, the paper was basically looking at what do people want when they go in to get evaluated for back pain? And the title was, People with low back pain want clear, consistent, and personalized information on prognosis, treatment options, and self-management strategies. It was a systematic review of 40, Wait, 41 studies. That's the title of that's, the paper? That's the title of the paper, yes. <laughs> what a terrible <laughs> title. Right, yeah. <laughs> but when you look at the, you know, just to, people are obviously, they can, they can look it up, but they, they found that um, people's, uh, when they come in for evaluation, uh, their their thoughts are centered around the desire for a diagnosis, uh, which is an issue that we run into all the time because this potentially contributes to expectations for and overuse of imaging. Um, so meaning that, you know, we see this and, and the reason I'm bringing this up, not just for back pain, but in general, people experience pain and they come to us and they say, what could it be? Um, they people want a very specific diagnosis. They want a specific structure or a label or a tissue to blame. Um, they want us to say it's a facet or it's a disc or it's their meniscus or it's their labrum or it's their tendon or something like that. Um, and this part of this, uh, contributes to people's desires for imaging because they want us to be able to take a picture and show it to them. This is kind of like a, it's, it's just a culturally embedded, uh, uh, view of, of this stuff. And, and this is part of the battle that we're all fighting is kind of to try to shift the needle on pe- the, the cultural understanding of pain, what it means, what it re- represents, how to think about it and how to deal with it. Um, in that trying to reduce everything down to like one specific, you know, biological tissue abnormality is, uh, usually an oversimplification to the point of being wrong as we see all the time. Um, so very often our answers to these people end up being, you know, 
I don't know. It sounds like you're having pain, but I can't give you a specific tissue. Fortunately, the prognosis of this matters much more than the diagnosis does in that your prognosis is good for improvement, particularly if we do this and this and this, in other words, laying out some sort of a plan. Because the other thing this, they found in this review is that people expressed a desire for clear, consistent, and personalized information on prognosis, on treatment options, and on self-management strategies, which is what we like the best. The cool thing that I, you know, I had actually uh, last week, I had a few clients who sent me in their, their check-ins for their coaching. And they had run into some issues in the course of their training. They had some aches and pains or they had some scheduling conflicts or some equipment issues, just standard stuff that people experience in life and in training. And the cool thing was they reported all this stuff to me. And then right below it, the next paragraph was, my plan is to do this, 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 this. Um, I think I'm going to, you know, I think I should be fine if I do this. Let me know if you have any other thoughts or what you think about this. And I was like, that is awesome because they ran into something. And at this point in these, because I've been coaching these people for long enough, they felt like they had been equipped with the tools, the knowledge, the skill set to be able to self-manage and work around the situation without needing, you know, every single barrier to be fixed or dealt with for them. Um, and so that applied to the pain situation, the scheduling stuff, the equipment, really anything that comes up, which is really the fundamental thing that we're trying to promote because everybody hears us not shut up about the idea of self-efficacy and trying to put people in the driver's seat and make them not dependent on, on others to, to fix things or, or do everything for them. Uh, the more I can put them in a situation where they feel confident and in control, uh, the better of outcomes we're going to get in general. And so that's kind of what this paper tended to show. The only thing that this paper showed that was a bit frustrating was, of course, that people still want, they're like, but there's something, there's one specific thing that's wrong, tell me what it is, and take a picture of it, which is the biggest thing that we're still fighting against. Yeah, but that, but that speaks to why people may be frustrated or ultimately unsatisfied with you know, some people may be frustrated or unsatisfied with our advice. Sure. Yeah. Um, cause be, because they, they view us are kind of uh, waffling about, well, it could be this, it could be that ultimately probably doesn't really matter that much what matters more is, you know, the natural course of this thing and what we should do now based on your symptoms, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they might view that as incomplete or insufficient coaching, you know, and we're like, well, we're not, it's not that we're, ignorant of all these other potential, you know, these potential quote unquote tissue diagnoses. We're just saying it doesn't really matter which one it is unless it does matter in which case, but we've already identified it's not those things that we're like acutely like concerned about. Sure. So for instance, somebody has low back pain. Yeah. We're like, all right, let's make sure there's not some like space occupying lesion, make sure there's not a vertebral fracture. Let's make sure there's not like, you know, some other infectious etiology or whatever that like all these things that like you can't, fix <laughs> it's like you know training manipulation and you know education and stuff like that because it does require specific treatment um but once we've already eliminated that we're kind of like all right cool well it doesn't really matter if it's you know a disc thing or a uh you know a ligament thing or whatever we're, we're just we're gonna move forward so people people get frustrated though based on uh uh, what their expectations are. Yeah, especially because they may be coming from somebody else who is perfectly happy to give them a super confident explanation for you know what was going on, even if it was completely sure. wrong, right? We hear people who go and they're like, oh, you clearly have you know subacromial rotator cuff impingement and you have this osteophyte that's mashing on your tendons or something. And it's like, well, that whole explanation is wrong. Um, <laughs> but then they're like, they're like, okay, so what's wrong? And we're like, well, we don't really understand shoulder pain all that well. And that's actually 
the truth on the matter. And they're like, well, that's the worst answer. I'm going to go back to the other guy who seemed to know what he was talking about. It's like, well, okay. (laughs) Yeah. People want concrete answers. Even if, uh, even if we have the benefit of being right, uh, can still be frustrating from a patient experience standpoint. Yeah. Okay. Moving forward. Today's the, 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 Nitty gritty. We're getting in like forty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to talk about this book that uh, Austin and I both uh, recently read, and we've been recommending, and it's been getting a lot of airplay in the uh, uh, what I will just call the intellectual circles. Um, this book is called Range. The author is David Epstein. David Epstein's got a pretty interesting background. So he's uh, his education background includes he's uh, he went to Columbia University, got a degree in. Uh, environmental sciences, got a master's in the same topic and also in journalism. He worked for ProPublica uh, as an author over there. He helped break like the steroid um, scandal with uh, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. He you know, has been effectively writing about uh, sports and science um, in all these outlets for a long time. He published a previous book called The Sports Gene, which is actually on our reading list. And his latest book is called Range. And the, the idea behind this book is basically comparing and contrasting specialization versus generalization in many different modalities, different areas. So from sports to learning to occupational performance, you know, business, everything. And I thought this book was revolutionary for me. When I heard that this thing was coming out, I was so psyched. I was on the, I pre-ordered it. I ordered, pre-ordered it on Kindle. I pre-ordered it, the hardback. I pre-ordered the audio book. Like I was ready. The thing came out May 28th and I had finished it by June 1st. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a a great book. Um, You know, the first, the first chapter, we're not going to spoil it. So we would highly recommend that you guys get it. We don't have like a affiliate link through Amazon. So we're not making any money off this, but we'll link the the book in the show notes. Um, The, the initial chapter talks about Tiger Woods, your recent Masters champion, versus Federer, the uh, Roger Federer, the tennis stud, yeah. and basically they're two very different upbringings with respect to specific practice for their sport. Tiger specialized early. You know, I think the story goes that by age of two he was you know playing golf, and then Federer kind of he played a lot of soccer basketball ran track the whole, the whole thing and then only specialized in tennis when he was a teenager you know uh after that like introduction you know it's basically two different paths to world domination yeah the, <laughs> i think their, the question respect. he was trying to get at was like okay so we have these conflicting examples which one is a better representation of like the typical experience out there which is more representative of you know people who actually achieve higher levels of of performance because from the Tiger Woods story, that is kind of echoing, um, you know, Gladwell's prior, uh, you know, discussions on the topic and the ten thousand hour stuff from Erickson prior to that, and 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 those kind of ideas. Whereas Federer's example um, flies in the face of all of that. You know, he had not really any degree of specificity for a really long time, and his parents didn't even care what sports he was doing, as long as he was just like out there doing stuff and not taking it too seriously. Um, whereas Tiger and his dad were on the polar opposite end of the spectrum. The funniest part of that whole chapter was, I guess they were interviewing Federer at, like early on when he had just like came on the scene. I think as he was still a teenager, um, and they were like, you know, with success in tennis, like what do you what do you want? And he said, Mercedes. 
which, you know, the, the journalist wrote down Mercedes, like the car, yeah. but the, translated, it means more CDs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, as a teenager, you know, you probably do want more compact discs, <laughs> but his, but apparently his mom was like mortified. It was like, she was like, oh my gosh, so we raised this kid. He's just, he just wants cars or whatever, which, you know, wouldn't be an unusual answer sure. in today's day and age, but dude just wanted some more CDs. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that throughout the whole book. Uh, basically goes through different examples different in different uh, arenas to discuss like early specialization how that turns out versus you know generalization sampling early on and then specializing later you know late bloomers and and people who have uh whose careers zigzag versus you know starting and specializing early uh instead of just rehashing the whole book chapter by chapter, let's talk about just some of the, the stuff we learned from it and then application. Let's start out with just sport in general. Um, and we can both just kind of speak on this. My, my takeaway from this, just like how I would apply what I read in this book in the context of my greater knowledge of you know sports development, it kind of jibes with this emerging thought about delayed specialization for athletes. Um, most of the data comes from like younger athletes where we have really, really robust data suggesting that early specialization leads to worse outcomes, not just performance wise, but also greater injury rates, more burnout, decreased level of peak performance. Basically, you don't want to peak early. You don't want to peak in high school. You just want to start getting specializing at that point. You want rather a wide range of different exposures and of sampling different sports, different activities as a youth. And then later on, if you like, you can specialize. Um, that's been, you know, within the last five years, just been written about extensively. And I think that this book just further provides more evidence and application outside of athletics. But did you take away anything different from that or was it more of like a reinforcement of stuff you already kind of thought well it, it is interesting just because uh, it it uh, actually prompted me to reframe a little bit of my thoughts about my own training history um there have been many po- mm-hmm. many points along the way where i've said you know especially with all these like younger freak powerlifters coming up in the scene you know where you're like oh i wonder how you know where i would be today if i had started lifting you know five years prior to what i actually did or 10 years prior to what i actually did um and and in light of, of thinking about this stuff more after reading the book, I was like, well, uh, there's actually a good chance I'd be worse <laughs> than I am now um, if I had actually done that. Um, and, and going through all the sports I did growing up, I did played soccer, played baseball, ran cross country, um, swam, uh, and then just various other kind of like recreational sports and games and stuff with, with, uh, with teammates and classmates and friends and things like that. Um, uh, thinking about this stuff more, I, I, at every step of the way, I had teammates, um, in each of those sports who were really, really good, um, at, at that level when we were training and competing and who ultimately, uh, you know, became the kid who was known to have peaked early and didn't really make it much further than that. Um, there was, I I remember when I swam, there was like an age group kid who was like five years old and he had basically specialized in swimming by that, by that age. And he was, he was just crushing every other age group kid. He was like, he owned the record board for years after that. And, um, and you know, that was kind of the trajectory that we ended up observing was kind of a falling 
going off later on. Same, you know, I had some college teammates who were recruited um, to the college team because they were total studs in high school. They were just, you know, they were they were killing, you know, winning states and, and crushing the competition. And then they get to the college level and they never match their performances from like, you know, a year or two before when they were in high school and they were, you know, pretty early specializers. Whereas myself, I was like, not as good getting, get, get going into college. I was like a walk on to the, to the team where I competed. And then I started training in the first year. I dropped like multiple seconds off of all of my PRs in the first year. And, and, you know, I was setting like all lifetime PRs and just like casual meets and stuff like that. Just like this rapid improvement at that point, um, later on. Uh, and so I feel like I had a lot of kind of observational experience of some of this stuff that didn't necessarily register because I think the point of this book is like how deeply embedded this cultural idea of like early practice, um, is, and, 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 uh, the biggest place where it seems to be is, uh, well, two biggest places I would say is like in academics and academia and, and even more so in music, um, when they're talking about, you know, kids learning, learning instruments really, really early, um, it's just very, really deeply embedded culturally. And it's difficult to, to break our mindset away from it as, as, as evidenced by both of us, kind of even our, our evolution, our thought process on this. And, um, so recently I've been editing one of Derek Miles's upcoming article series on youth, uh, youth athletes. And he gets into this a lot. This is a big area of interest for him since he's a kind of a pediatric, uh, sports, uh, uh, physical therapist. And, um, and he, uh, he even opened my eyes even further to a lot of this stuff because of how heavily referenced all of his work is. So I could see the data that he's citing on injury risk, on performance outcomes, on advancement to the next level of performance in early specializers versus non-early specializers. Uh, and so that hopefully will have coming up published, uh, published pretty soon. But I think that the way that we're now starting to interpret this a little bit more is that rather than restricting this to, you know, the youth, uh, the youth athlete, we can just replace the word youth with just beginner. And that can be at any stage of the game. Um, if people want to get the best long-term outcomes, uh, specializing or, 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 uh, kind of artificially restricting yourself to a very limited, uh, set of activities right off the bat. If you want to become a runner starting out doing nothing but running, if you want to become a powerlifter starting out doing nothing but powerlifting, whatever the case is from, from very early on in your training is probably not the way to go to, to get yourself the best longer term outcomes. Even if, even if the shorter term outcomes are better, which is the really interesting thing here, right? Because it's very tempting to say, you know, doing this early got me really, you know, I had this market improvement really early on. It's like, well, of course you did. And then that is what we end up seeing actually peter out in the long run in academics and in athletics and, uh, and in music and on all these other, all these, all these other areas. So you kind of have to like, you have a bit more of a critical mind and, and, and understand this stuff if you're going to be able to say, okay, you know, even if I got better, faster, right off the bat, that's maybe probably not necessarily better in the longer run. Yeah. Yeah. And while, while this is like a kind of a more of a universal thought that we're, you know, kind of generating here, there are some cases where early specialization maybe is beneficial due to the incentives constructed by the actual sport and the develop, you know, the, the, the ways that people can participate in that sport right now. For instance, gymnastics. Um, High-level gymnastics doesn't occur. <laughs> in, the th- in, in your 30s? <laughs> in your 30s, yeah. You don't have time to do the sampling. Yeah. You know, you have to be good by the time you're an early teenager, you know, if you want to make it to the highest level. It doesn't mean that that's the best way to develop, you know, gymnastics 
proficiency. It's just that the incentives placed by the sport right now and the way that it's currently, you know, the rules are kind of make sure that people have to funnel in early uh, to, you know, to get to that international level, um, which is reflected in the injury rates and, you know, burnout and other sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, so it's not to say that universally, if we remove all other caveats here, that this is the rule. It's like, well, some sports, you do get a benefit from that early performance increase that you get from specialization. But by and large, sports that you get to participate in as an adult or later, you know, for a long period of time do tend to reflect better outcomes when you have this early sampling period with later specialization. And the way we apply that to training is reflected in our beginner template and the beginner prescription, the free, the free download, um, which is also in the show notes. You guys can check that out. I mean, this book was published after I had already written the initial manuscript for the beginner prescription. So it was nice that this came out and kind of felt, I felt a little validated, you know, more validated based, you know, just additional data supporting, uh, my thinking about this or thinking about this. Um, the way I, I actually apply this to training is, is very similar to how you just said, if you remove the term youth from like, you know, how would you optimally develop a youth athlete? Like how would you optimally develop a beginner athlete? Well, you'd have a lot of sampling early on many. And in, in respect, in the case of training, you'd have more movement variety, more rep range variety, more just task variation in order to improve physical proficiency across a wide range of tasks to develop this big base of general physical proficiency, which could then be applied specifically later on compared to early specialization. Like you're only going to work in one rep range. You're only going to work on a handful of exercises. You're only going to, you know, restrict yourself to resistance training. Yeah. <laughs> like all and these, I think, all these I things. Think we mentioned, you know, in the beginner podcast, how even with this model, like we could have fleshed it out to be even to, to, to kind of fit these ideas even more, but we had to make some degree of compromises because we're putting something out there that people are going to do for the most part uncoached. Right. So yep. that was kind of how we ended up having to artificially constrain some of the things, even if we didn't necessarily really want to. Yeah, and and also include some of our assumptions about why people they with would respect to, <laughs> yeah, right, with respect to adherence, yeah, right. Sure. So it's like, yeah, you know, I could have we could have put in a whole bunch of zany exercises, <laughs> yeah, zany also being Austin's middle name, <laughs> <laughs> but we think that we'd get less buy-in just based on our audience. It doesn't mean it'd be wrong. It just you know, and and we don't have <laughs> a lot of evidence to necessarily support. Uh, some of those decisions, but that's just kind of our gestalt, uh, if you will. But I, th- I think that people should read this book and just get a better sense of like why we keep saying this. Cause this is probably the third or fourth podcast where we've discussed the sort of early sa- sampling period being likely more advantageous than early specialization and why we're moving away from yeah, that. Yeah. There, there are just more examples that are provided um, than, than you can, than you can argue with, I think. And, and one of the, some of the other interesting ones. So like, do you remember the example he talks about in the book about the, the students in the, the calculus class? Oh yeah. Where they're like, they're, they're, they're comparing like their ratings of their professor and their performance in the class and their performance in like, you know, post uh, in, in their subsequent courses that the calculus was a prerequisite for. And like the professors who, the, the kids who performed the best in the calculus class itself and who rated the professor the highest tended to not do as well 
later on suggesting that it was just like, you know, maybe, maybe easy for them up front. And then there's this kind of idea of deep learning that the people who thought it was harder and didn't like the professor as much had this, you know, some, some, something was different about the way they learned um, that, that ended up resulting in longer term improvements in how they did in the, in the subsequent coursework and things like that, suggesting again, that, uh, you know, acute performance during that early period um, is probably not of very much significance, or at least not as much significance as, as is often placed upon it. Yep. Well, and then it has a further extension in learning. There's actually a really cool article that I'll also post uh, in the description. It's called the Temin Effect. So this is an article by Gladwell and Epstein. They, uh, they joined they, forces. Nice. Yeah, and it is published in the American Academy of Ophthalmology. <laughs> Which you're, and you're thinking, you're like, what? <laughs> but I, and I forget, the reason I found out about this, and this is an aside, um, so the first time that Epstein and Gladwell met, I think was, oh man, it had to be like 2010, 2011. They had this, it was set up as a debate, right? So Epstein was going to debate Gladwell, basically sports gene versus 10,000 hour rule, like, you know, who's yeah. going to win? And what's super interesting about this is that Gladwell goes in there with this open mind and he's like, basically on stage, he's like, yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) And then like subsequent interviews with both parties. Yeah. Gladwell was like, yeah, I wasn't married to any of my own theories. You know, I wasn't invested in this theory that, you know, early specialization was way better. I just happened to think that, you know, even though some of my brand was kind of centered around being the 10,000 hour guy, I wasn't married to it. So when presented, (laughs) right, exactly. And then Epstein, you know, was common. He's like, I actually couldn't believe that he had open (laughs) mind to this stuff considering. Um, And then they had a second, they had a second uh, uh, interview together at the, this sports summit that uh, I can also link where they basically discussed how uh, Gladwell ended up changing his mind and they published this paper. So anyway, this paper, I think they published it because either Epstein's brother or Gladwell's brother is an ophthalmologist. And so effectively, they were looking at residents' learning uh, rates for ophthalmologists, for uh, like they were ophthalmology residents. And I guess one group, they specialized. All they did was they got to study uh, and had didactic work in just ophthalmology-related stuff. Okay. And then the second group got exposed to some of the didactic work in ophthalmology, but had dedicated time where they had to go learn art history, mm. which you're thinking like, what (laughs) and but the group that ended up learning like both art history and the didactic work from uh the ophthalmology residency program actually had better retention of the ophthalmology information interesting yeah and i but i was like no way they published this and uh sure enough so yeah it was pretty interesting so i'll put put that in the show notes as well um i just think with respect to learning this does again similar to your kind of reflection that you had from reading this book where you were like well yeah this early specialization or early generalization that i that you had in sport didn't seem to you know cause you any deleterious effect to your outcome like you did better you know potentially for having this early sampling period and i think for me like learning i had that same reflective process where i was like well i started out as a bible major philosophy major then a science major and then i had all this job experience you know running a gym educating folks etc then i got a master's in anatomy and then medical school and then which is you know you could say that those are all like science related but then i've also learned taken like 
coursework on cooking and video production and sound engineering, like all this other stuff, you know, in addition to, and like in my formative years, like building engines and like just a wide range of different skills. So like, which I find to be rewarding personally, but also I think helps me learn things now because I've learned a lot of new things, a lot of different times. And 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 when we all, when we come across a new topic and go down a new rabbit hole every week and, you know, we're just kind of like expanding into all sorts of new various topics that, you know, we learn about and try to incorporate into our existing understanding of things or modify our understanding based on what we learn. Yep. Yep. So I think it's a good book. You guys should pick up range. Uh, the rest of this podcast is going to be about just book recommendations. I think you and I have read a lot of the same things, but we can kind of interject different stuff and if you, uh, and stuff that you haven't read that I've read, I comment on it back and forth. And I, I broke this, these, this up into three different topics. People always ask again, like, wh- what should I read? And it's like, well, <laughs> what do you want to read? If, I, if, if you actually just want like a fun science read, you know, pop science read, and I give you a, a, a you know, textbook recommendation, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah. So um, first thing, you know, probably the biggest question we get is, hey, if I want to be a better coach, trainer, uh, or I want to just know more as a lifter about the training process, like what books do you recommend? Um, the first book I recommend to people is The Science and Practice of Strength Training by Zat Siorski. I think that lays a nice groundwork for folks to learn about program structure and like just the nuts and bolts of, you know, different rep ranges, different uh, conditioning protocols, different periodization models, all that stuff that is well laid out in that book. And I would consider that to be uh, a really good text on that. Um, Have you ever read that book? Um, Probably I have it and probably about half of it. Yeah. 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 It's a good book. I think that, you know, previously we would recommend some other books, but I I do find the definitions and the descriptions and the sort of discussion about all those elements in this book to be superior and then also uh, accessible, which I like. So uh, I would not read super training, for instance, because it's lacking the accessibility and the sort of application. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not that it's a bad book. It's just like, I don't know what to do with it. Uh, But the science and practice of strength training Second edition by Zatsiorski is a great book. The next two books are both by Chris Beardsley and <laughs> this guy. So he's a great guy. He puts out a bunch of great free information on medium.com. Um, so you can search all of his free articles there. But he published uh, a number of books with these two books in particular. One is called Strength is Specific. And the second book is his hypertrophy book, uh, which I would recommend both of them. They're both for sale for $2.99 a piece <laughs> on Kindle. So it's like... Why just give them away yeah. for free? Who knows? Who knows the decision making there? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like, like who was your focus group that said, you know what, two ninety nine <laughs> is the max that I'll pay for this. <laughs> I, probably, I don't know if I would write a book if that was the the focus group feedback. That I think. I, got. I think that I just, if you're, you know, yeah, I think I first came across the strength of specific book, and um, and it was a quick and and easy read, and sent it over to you and said, you know, see what you think of this, and. Um, I think that he makes a lot of these topics super, super accessible to people, particularly in these books. I wish that there were, I wish that he, uh, 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 provided more of the references in the book, uh, in the, in the books themselves. Some of the things I think that he probably, 
makes accessible to the point of oversimplification. Um, for example, like when you see, you know, that I'm in general, not a huge fan of, of infographics and, and the infographics that he makes and publishes oftentimes make things look a whole lot prettier and nicer and neater than they're likely to be in, in real life. Um, but I think he's trying to illustrate concepts kind of more so than like actually like uh, uh, illustrating the raw data that he's taking out of papers. But anyway, I think conceptually they're good topics for people to read. Um, I think they may uh, conflict with some people's existing biases and that's always a good thing to do regardless of what you end up uh, uh, coming away with in terms of a conclusion. But that was, that was kind of what happened with us is, you know, reading it and, and we had some skepticism about the idea and then reading it and, and reviewing more of the literature and then thinking about it more in the context of what we actually observe in the real world. And we're like, yeah, this is probably closer to the closer to being right than we had been previously. So um, I think that those are decent, decent uh, places to start. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've discussed a lot of the concepts that are constrained contained in the book. Uh, a number of times, but if you want your own resource where this stuff is collated, expanded upon it, but yet also accessible, I would, I can't recommend these books enough. And again, it's two ninety nine. <laughs> like, like it just <laughs> give this man, let's tip this guy. Like I wish he had like a, this is the only GoFundMe yeah. that I would, right. I would uh, consider donating to. Uh, the next uh, book is called science of running by Steve Magnus. Um, I came across this book probably 2013 or 14 because I was looking for like, a, a I don't know, kind of like a go-to text for in, endurance training, conditioning. And at the time there wasn't anything that I was like, you know, head over heels for. I think though, this book really lays out again, energy systems and sort of performance improvements and like what you should actually be tracking and measuring and manipulating training uh, uh, with and and it talks about resistance training's role in endurance performances at different you know distances and stuff. I this stuff's great. I would recommend the Science of Running by Steve Magnus. I don't know. If, have you read that book? Yes, also? and 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 I know we've talked about this before with respect to the the concepts of like polarized training um, in the in the yep. conditioning world yep. and how we kind of. Um, have have extrapolated some of those ideas to, or, or just observed that the the polarized training ideas in in uh, the endurance world, i.e., where you do some amount of work at like you know pretty high intensities and the bulk of your work at lower intensities and relatively little in this like in between range, where that sounds uh, you know oddly familiar with respect to how we program a lot of our uh, resistance training work. We give people some exposure to the really high intensity, hard, heavy stuff. We spend, uh, we get the bulk of our work in the, you know, more moderate uh, and lower intensity stuff. And then that in-between range where stuff is like super hard and super fatiguing, we don't tend to accumulate a whole bunch of work there. So the parallels with the, the polarized training approach are kind of interesting there. Yeah. Yeah. I like that book a lot. And uh, it, the cool, the best, not the best part, but one interesting or, or sort of useful inclusion in that book is like the last 20 pages of it are all like practical programming examples, which yeah. is nice. Cause you're like, okay, Hey, thanks for the background. Uh, what do, yeah. <laughs> um, the next set of books is by Vladimir Isserin. He's kind of like the father of block periodization. Um, and he's got a handful of books, intro to block periodization. I think the other one is like advanced concepts and block periodization. But if you look around for block periodization and Isserin, um, he's got th those two books and then also like, uh, athlete, long-term athlete development, a long-term athlete development book. I can't get enough of this guy's stuff. And, and I, I won't lie to you though. Uh, 
a lot of these books are uh, geared towards field track and field athletes or like uh, like real sports, <laughs> <laughs> not, not barbell sports, but the concepts of programming and, uh, are very useful. So I would recommend them. And it's funny because every strength coach that I've had, we've had on the podcast, like Tushir, uh, for example, and then some of the other coach, our coaches, uh, for example, they're like, yeah, I like a certain stuff too. Just for like a conceptual mm-hmm. framework. So um, would read. And then my last in, you know, a recommendation is going to be the transfer of training by Anatoly Bondarchuk. Uh, this is a really good book that gets into like specific uh, physical preparedness. So SPP versus GPP, general physical preparedness. And so you can kind of start thinking about specific training elements versus general training elements and, you know, when it's appropriate to do either one of those. It's a thick book. Like this is not just like a, it's not a toilet book. You know, it's just like, put it on the toilet and like thumb through it. You know, this is like, it's going to require some dedicated work. But uh, I think if you read that and you have this sort of framework uh, and I, I kind of listed these in order of like how I would actually read these, uh, then I think you have a, a pretty good base of how to understand training programs um, when you look at them. So, so now like if you or I, Austin, look at a training program on a piece of paper, we should be able to observe like some some trends. We're like, okay, I see the progressive overload here. Okay, I see the, you know, either specificity or lack thereof, and that makes sense or doesn't make sense yeah. based on <laughs> what the context is. And you can you can kind of see all the elements pretty quickly. You can chunk everything together and recognize quickly that this looks reasonable or looks unreasonable. Um, and I think that the final kind of touch here is that transfer of training by Bondarchuk. Now you put in Kylie's literature, John Kylie's literature. Uh, do you have specific papers or you just, you would have people go on yeah. his well, website and just, yeah. So around. the reason I put this here is because you're going to do all this reading, get through these books, all these theories of periodization stuff like that. And then we're ready to just shoot it all down, burn it all down so that you go back to thinking you don't know anything about anything. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he has, right. he has several, several papers that we can link. Uh, his name is uh, John Kiley, K I E L Y, where he basically looks back and he's like, where did all these ideas come from? What evidence base do we have to support them? Yeah. How accurate are they? Because the whole, you know, the whole concept of periodization is that you can have this like deliberate intentional manipulation of, of training variables, the so-called biological input into the system that is the athlete. And you can get a, you know, you can get a consistent, predictable output in terms of adaptation from the athlete. And uh, it's a very mechanical kind of uh, biologically reductionist view of how we train humans. And, you know, the, the ideas turn out to be maybe not quite as well supported as, as we might think. And, and he kind of introduces this idea, not surprising to people who've listened to our stuff, about taking a more of a biopsychosocial approach to training prescription programming involving the athlete more, some like autonomy, self-efficacy stuff, paying attention to other variables than strictly the biological stuff. Um, and then on top of that, you know, uh, paying more attention to variation in individual response to training because you can have, you know, the most theoretically optimal biological prescription sets reps load. And you might have somebody who just doesn't respond to that uh, in the way you would like, or you predict. And so you need to of course have some sort of a framework of like, Hey, where do I start when I just start putting pen to paper or finger to keyboard when I'm, you know, designing somebody's training program. And that's where a lot of this other stuff that you're 
talking about these other books, uh, these other ideas can can give you a place to start. Because if you just go through all this stuff and then you come away with like, well, I guess nothing works and I don't know anything, then you're just going to sit there in front of a blank screen or blank piece of paper and not know what to do. So you need some sort of uh, having a framework or having a system is better than not having one. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, I would agree with pulling away a little bit from the rigidly biological you know, view of this and, and taking more of a, more of the comprehensive perspective that is laid out in several of several of his papers from the past few years. Um, and, and, you know, for myself, I think that you probably read more books than I do. And I tend to go a lot more towards the, the primary literature on certain topics. And that's also echoed with respect to, to training. And so, you know, I guess what I've started to gravitate towards is, is more of an idea of just kind of like whittling away to like the most basic few kind of general principles that we can actually confidently say. And then the rest is really just going to be a matter of like, just because of every single training variable that you, that exists, you can find data showing where there's this huge inter individual variation in response to, to that prescription, right? With frequency, lower, high volume, lower, high intensity, lower, high. And it just makes really, really little sense to get super attached to any one, uh, kind of training prescription with respect to say powerlifting outcomes. Um, just because like, if you look in the real world, just like we say, you know, if you're going to, you know, lift a weight or squat, there's like, you see all these different styles that people do the lift in there's equally, there's just tons of different ways that people train and program and, and, and how they go about this thing. And you can see people achieve just freakishly good outcomes from all sorts of different training strategies. There are people who train at super high intensities. There are people who train at super low intensities and vice versa and frequency and all this stuff. And so I see relatively little reason to get super, super attached to, to one particular style outside of just the most basic general principles or the framework from which we start and then kind of individualize from there based on response, on preferences, on, on uh, a lot of these psychosocial variables that we, that we see taking on increasing relevance uh, with respect to performance and injury outcomes and things like that. Yeah, I would agree with you, though. You know, it's like after you've read enough books on this stuff, uh, and you're not necessarily seeking that like initial fund of knowledge that allows you to yeah. go read the primary right. literature. Uh, then you should most of your time should be spent on primary literature unless a book is released that collates that nicely yeah. for you or something that you're not really well read on. In which case, then you're you're, you're just restarting that same process yeah. over again. Like, all right, I'm going to develop this fund of knowledge so I can have like a lens to view this primary right. literature through, and then I can yeah apply it. Okay. That's training stuff. You you know, honorable mention goes to, you know, Aragon's nutrition stuff, uh, uh, Schoenfeld's hypertrophy and strength stuff, like as far as primary literature goes. We could, we could just, you know, list paper after paper after paper. But what we'll do instead is link to Austin's uh, or our uh, weekly reading recommendations because a lot of that stuff yeah. ends up there. Um, and if you want our take on it, you can check out our monthly research review where we talk about this stuff. In great detail. Yes. Uh, okay, science books. <laughs> because what I put this, I put I put this in here because people are like, hey, I, I don't have a physiology background. I've never took physio, never taken physiology, never taken anatomy. Like, what do? And it's like, well, you're in luck because uh, I've taken them a bunch of yeah. different times and taught them a bunch of different times, and uh, these are my recommendations. So, yeah, again, just to reiterate. I, I, I think I've taken 10 different physiology classes 
over the course of my, like straight up phys courses over the course of my education. And then about the same for anatomy. I know that I've taken just straight up anatomy without any sort of modifier five times, <laughs> like human anatomy five times. Okay. And then taught it. And then, you know, but if we include neuroanatomy, if we talk about uh, anatomical assessment, you know, whatever, we're, we're getting up there. So these are my opinion. This is not like they didn't do any, there's no studies on this showing these books are superior to other books, but whatever. So my physiology recommendation is the book is called Physiology and it's by Costanzo. It's purple. Um, the reason I like this book, so she also write, wrote the board review series, the BRS book, um, which medical students and professionals use to review physiology for boards and then also their physiology classes because it's a nice, tight resource for like physiological it's concepts. It's way more accessible than Guyton and Hall. <laughs> yes, 100%. 100%. Um, and there, but her expanded text is called Physiology. It's purple and is similar to her board review series, but with more discussion that is very accessible. And I keep recommending this book because I have not found another physiology book that is as accessible. And people say, yeah, but I want an exercise physiology text. And I, I understand the want for that, but the issue is that if you don't have a physiology background or a physiology instructor to help guide you through that text, I think that you end up not knowing enough about physiology at the end of one of those yeah. books. Um, mainly because you're missing a lot of physiology <laughs> if you just restrict yourself to exercise physiology. I don't specialize so, too early. And, and, yeah, <laughs> yes. And then in addition to that, like if you want to be able to read papers that discuss a lot of physiology, you won't be short served by not having an exercise physiology text, whereas the reverse isn't necessarily yeah. true. So anyway, this is my recommendation. Costanzo, physiology, it's purple. And then for anatomy, you hear a lot of people recommend like Gray's or Netter's gets a lot of airplay. And I don't think that any of these are bad. I have owned and still own most of these texts because each different uh, anatomy course I would take, the professor would have like a their, their favorite. pet yeah. book. Yeah. But the problem is like, so for Netter, so Frank Netter was a, a surgeon, residency trained surgeon, um, who apparently the story goes, wasn't a really good surgeon and, so, but he was really good at drawing. And so he ended up coming up with this anatomy atlas with all these hand-drawn pictures. And that's been revised over the years. I don't know what edition they're on now. I'm sure it's in the double digits, but, um, the problem with that book as like a resource for anatomy is that there's no text that accompanies the atlas. It's just a series of pictures or what anatomists would call plates. Each picture is called a plate. And so let's say you, for instance, you were trying to learn about the anatomy of the leg. Well, then you would go to the lower limb section and you would just see pictures that were labeled of the lower extremity, which, you know, can be useful. But because there's no actual accompanying text that takes you through like the structure and function and innervation, like, you know, the nerve that supplies the muscle and like cl relative clinical pearls associated with that. Like, so for instance, if this muscle becomes, you know, gets severed, you know, here's the deficit or if the innervation to this muscle becomes compromised, here's what happens because you don't have any of that. You can't really integrate this anatomical yeah. knowledge. So that's why I find all these other books to be lacking for folks who are not taking an anatomy course. If you're taking an anatomy course, usually there's a syllabus that accompanies all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. And you're in a lab too, and you're visualizing stuff. And then most people then use the anatomy atlas to like, as they're dissecting to be like, oh, here's the muscle I'm looking for. Here's the nerve I'm looking for. And here's where it should be. Moore's clinical anatomy, which is my recommended anatomy text, has an accompanying, accompanying text with the pictures. And it has little sidebars or pretty robust sidebars talking about all the relevant clinical anatomy, meaning that all the stuff that you'd be likely tested on in your anatomy class anyway. Like, so a common example would be the inferior gluteal nerve innervates the glute max. And if it's severed, then you get a deficit uh, because the glute max no longer functions as it should. So hip extension, jumping, standing all the way up is called compromised, yeah. right? Well, you wouldn't learn that from a netter's atlas, but this actually has a sidebar describing that that happens and why yeah. it happens. So it, again, it walks you through this sort of structure function kind of thing, which is useful. So anyway, that's why I recommend that for the anatomy text because you learn okay, here's where the muscles are, here's what they do, here's what the nerves, you know, that innervate them, and here's, like, the clinical correlation to an injury in the area, for instance. So I find that to be very useful. And then the last, like, science-related book that I think is useful is the is Gropper's Advanced Human Metabolism and Nutrition. Again, this isn't, like, how to diet. That's not this book. Or, like, how to gain weight. That's not this book. But rather, learning about core nutritional concepts and how they relate to different disease states and, and, and some exercise correlation that's all in there. So I would recommend that book if you're trying to like learn more about nutrition. And again, very similar to the training books that we just described, these texts give you like that fund of knowledge that allows you to go read primary literature if you don't have any of this background and then you go try to read a nutrition article that was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, well, trouble. that's going to be yeah. a tougher read. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, uh, and then the last one, I think you're listing yeah. pain. Yeah, for people, uh, the pain, for, the supercharge. For people who um, want to get into the pain stuff, I think um, that that can definitely be an area of literature that can be super difficult or intimidating if somebody doesn't have some sort of a, a grounding in it. And so if you're looking for that in text form, I think probably a a really good place to start are the text by Butler and Mosley. They have two versions of their book. One is called Explain Pain, and that's one that is um, kind of more accessible for for most people. And then they have the the other version called Explain Pain Supercharged, and that's the one that's written kind of at a higher level, more scientific, more clinical, for people who have more of a maybe a neuroscientific background in their training. Um, I think that's a good place to start to uh, try to put together some of this, uh, basically these new ideas of thinking about pain and what we've learned about pain in the past 30, 40 years of, of uh, kind of more modern modern research um, compared to our traditional theories. So that's where I would go, that stuff. And then from there, dive into the primary literature uh, as well. Yeah, I agree. That's a great, it's a great book. Even like reading it po- like after med school. Like I oh, wish totally. that that was part yes. of our required reading during yes, neuroanatomy. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, uh, and now for a more some more fun recommendations. This is this is stuff I would consider to be like recreational reading. Um, if you're interested in like science and and uh, I wouldn't call this pop science because it's not really what it is. It's just more like what I consider to be interesting books. So the first one uh, I think you read this one too. How Doctors Think by Jerome yeah. Grootman. Uh, 
the caveat here, so this book is basically about how doctors actually think through problems and identifying errors in ways that we can think. So I found it very like enlightening to be like, oh, here are my own blind spots. Just thank you for <laughs> telling me that here's how I can right. be an error. But since we're all patients, you know, at some point in our life, uh, it's also useful to have this knowledge if you want to ask your doctor better questions um, and get uh, and basically be your own advocate because that's that's important. Uh, my only caveat to this book, I would not buy the audiobook because the God, the narrator, he's probably a nice guy, but it sounds like he's like from the 1940s, like a newscaster. Yeah. It's like, and in today there were three murders down on Fifth <laughs> Street. It's like, it, I mean, I just can't. I, it was it was dangerous. It's hazardous to my health. I almost fell asleep behind the wheel. But uh, yeah, that book I would I would buy. Um, Sports Gene by David Epstein. That's we, he wrote Range, which I would also recommend. Sports Gene is super interesting because it goes through all the genetic components that were known at the time, which has been rapidly expanding, uh, and how they correlate to sports performance. And so things you wouldn't necessarily intuit, like. The reason why Major League Baseball players are better at hitting a baseball has nothing to do with their hand-eye coordination or reaction time speed, right? It has to do with their vision, which tends to be above average. And you're like, wait, what? Yeah, read the book. It's pretty (laughs) cool. (laughs) There's a lot of cool stuff in there. Um, The next book, this guy I have a man crush on, Robert Sapolsky. Have you watched a YouTube video about this I've listened to some podcasts with him on it, but not a YouTube if you like, if since you're on the internet right now, just just Google Robert Sapolsky, and if you're by your smart device, like you should do this too. This guy looks wackadoo. Oh, it sure does. Like his, <laughs> <laughs> this guy. I mean, he's got. So he's an older gentleman with this huge beard, huge gray beard, and long hair. Really, it looks cur- like really curly. He reminds hair. me. <laughs> Yeah, it's very yeah, it's oddly yeah. curly. Um, it you know he he reminds me of my medical virology professor in undergrad, who was this other guy who I thought probably spent most of his weekends in the woods. Which again, fine, totally fine. But uh, I had such a man crush on this guy when I interviewed at Stanford for residency. This guy t- is a professor at Stanford. I actually snuck into his undergrad uh, class just because I wanted to like see this dude. I, you know, it wasn't as cool in person, but I did do that. Um, so anyway, his book, the first book by him that I would recommend is called why zebras don't get ulcers. It's all about stress. And the, one of the better parts of that, particularly as it uh, applies to training and programming and stuff like that, is it kind of goes into the fundamental errors in the general adaptation syndrome that Selway's, uh, theory and talks about allostasis a lot which is useful yes. <laughs> and then goes on further and how like environmental stress and emotional stress and just the perception of a threat can uh, modify people's response in learning in uh, interpersonal relationships and in performance and uh, uh, how people store fat, all this other stuff. So it's super interesting. Would read very accessible honorable mention. Another book by this guy is called the trouble with testosterone and other biological essays. It's, it says Mighty Mouse is on the cover, and uh, it's a it's a bunch of short essays on different like biological like fun facts. Uh, one's about testosterone, another one's about different areas in the brain and like sexual preferences. It's pretty cool. I would also schizophrenia is in there. It, it's fun. It's a fun read. Uh, so I would recommend those by Robert Sapolsky. 
And then my last recommendation for recreational reading, did you, and I don't know if you ever read this, uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I've listened uh, to many, I've listened to many stories about Oliver Sacks and about the condition that they're talking about and things like that, but not the book itself. So Oliver Sacks is a, was a neurologist. He recently passed away. Uh, he's, he was a, a ne- trained neurologist. He also was a power lifter, apparently squatted 600 <laughs> in a meet, also rode motorcycles. And actually his book, uh, was it, is it Life in the Fast Lane or something like that? Or it, his, his autobiography or his biography just recently came out. I finished that. Um, it, he said he front squatted 550 for a trip. Yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> Pretty good. So... <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, cool, cool guy. And, uh, but anyway, this book is all about like different neurological cases that he saw that were really interesting. And so I would recommend that book. Um, oh, you're, you got the Vinay, Vinay, uh, I've read several of the other ones you mentioned, and then I'll add this book called ending medical reversal. It's by Vinay Prasad, who's an oncologist and his colleague and former mentor. Uh, I think his name is Adam Sifu is an internist. And basically they, this, this topic is super interesting to me, and, and uh, what it teaches us is very generalizable. That's why I don't shut up about this, this book and, and their papers. Um, basically, the idea is that medical reversals are when we have some sort of an established medical practice that could be, you know, maybe it's something that's been done for a really, really long time, maybe it hasn't been subjected to particularly rigorous study. And then finally, we decide to actually sit down and do a controlled study on it. And uh, it shows us that what we thought worked or what we've been doing for a long time doesn't actually work at all um, or may even cause harm. And this is some of the concepts that I wrote about in the, the When Logic Fails article. And really, there's, there's so many of these things in the world of medicine, lots in cardiology and, and in particular seems to be notorious for this. Um, there was actually just you know, I haven't talked to you about this, but recently some, some stuff in the cardiology Twitter world talking about the effectiveness of intra aortic balloon pumps and like impella devices and all these things that actually may not work <laughs> to improve outcomes, which is pretty interesting. Um, and so, yeah, this text I think is one that anybody who's in healthcare should read, but I think it's accessible enough that people outside of it can, can read it as well. And the reason I like it in addition to the medical world is just because it is very applicable to things outside of medicine that have to do with humans, um, because it reflects this idea that there are so many things that we can just, as you said, like intuit about humans and how things might work, things that might sound perfectly rational, things that might sound perfectly logical and to the point of being obvious to where we start to hear people say like, why would you even bother studying that? It's obvious that that's how this would happen. And then somebody actually bothers to study it. And it's like, oops, like not how things work, usually because there's some component of the system that we didn't know about, that we didn't, that we didn't already understand or something new that something that was previously unrecognized that influenced how the system worked that we were not accounting for in our previous understanding and predictions about how things worked. And this just is kind of to solidify the argument for how in the context of human physiology, things are really complicated. We don't know everything things that appear to make sense, things that are co- that quote, are quote unquote common sense, things that are claimed based off of just observational anecdote. These this is why we just like practically dismiss them from a standpoint of like drawing confident conclusions. We just say, "Hey, yeah, that's a reasonable hypothesis. It's time to actually study it or test it." To which people say, "I don't need to study it. I have my own data," which is usually just means they've observed stuff, right? But we want more rigorous study on some of these things because so many things don't work the way we think in the context of human physiology. 
and biology in general. Yeah. We're just la- we're just lacking the whole picture. Yeah. Usually. So yeah. hard to intuit. You know, when we got on this podcast, Austin, I thought this was gonna take less time. And it wasn't my fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, as always, we're super grateful that you guys and gals have listened to our podcast. And if you're on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you're getting this from, make sure you hit subscribe. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. Really helps us out and drives traffic to our podcast, helps people discover Barbell Medicine, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. For Dr. Austin Baraki, I have been Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and we'll catch you guys next time. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.